should I just jump right into reading this poem? Yeah, that would be okay, wonderful. Please. Cool. Okay, great. Um, this is the first poem and the the title poem of the new book. The world keeps ending and the world goes on. And it's one that I wrote after my partner, who is very smart, much smarter than me. Um, at some point while I was sort of wading through the depths of despair, um, he said mm-hmm. this thing, a reminder that our people have survived the apocalypse for a long time, um, that it's happened many times before. Mm-hmm. And maybe it says something like morbid about me, but I found that to be very helpful. (laughs) So um, this is called The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On. Before the apocalypse, there was the apocalypse of boats. Boats of prisoners, boats cracking under sky iron, boats making corpses bloom like algae on the shore. Before the apocalypse, there was the apocalypse of the bombed mosque. There was the apocalypse of the taxi driver warped by flame. There was the apocalypse of the leaving and the having left, of my mother unsticking herself from her mother's grave as the plane barreled down the runway. Before the apocalypse, there was the apocalypse of planes. There was the apocalypse of pipelines legislating their way through sacred water and the apocalypse of the dogs before which was the apocalypse of the dogs and the hoses, before which the apocalypse of dogs and slave catchers whose faces glowed by lantern light, before the apocalypse, the apocalypse of bees, the apocalypse of buses, border fence apocalypse, coat hanger apocalypse, apocalypse in the textbook's selective silences, There was the apocalypse of the settlement and the soda machine, the apocalypse of the settlement and the jars of scalps. There was the bedlam of the cannery, the radioactive rain, the chairless martyr demanding a name. I was born from an apocalypse and have come to tell you what I know, which is that the apocalypse began when Columbus praised God and lowered his anchor. It began when a continent was drawn into cutlets. It began when Kublai Khan told Marco, begin at the beginning. By the time the apocalypse began, the world had already ended. It ended every day for a century or two. It ended, and another ending world spun in its place. It ended, and we woke up and ordered Greek coffees, drew the hot liquid through our teeth as everywhere the apocalypse rumbled. The apocalypse remembered our dear, beloved apocalypse. It drifted slowly from the trees all around us, so loud we finally stopped hearing it. (sighs) this is queers at the end of the world the podcast where all the ac units go quiet at once so now all you can hear are the birds and my one cussing neighbor doing his thing i'm your host nino and i'm your host nat and today we're talking to the poet, essayist, and organizer Franny Choi. Franny is the author of several books, including The World Keeps Ending and The World Goes On, coming out from Echo Books in November 2022. So pre-orders are open for that, and you should absolutely get your copy now. Franny Choi's other books include Soft Science from Alice James Books in 2019, Floating Brilliant Gone from Right Bloody Publishing in 2014, and a chat book called Death by Sex Machine from Sibling Rivalry Press in 2017. Franny was a 2019 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellow and has received awards from the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts and Princeton University's Lewis Center. Her poems have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, Paris Review, and elsewhere. She's faculty in literature at Bennington College and podcast fans. Up until very recently, she hosted the podcast Verses with Denez Smith, which is a fantastic podcast with long-form interviews with so many of the coolest poets writing today. It is an extremely fun podcast with so much incredible content and great conversation. So if you've never heard Versus, definitely go and check that out. All right. Well, Franny Choi, inviting you on the show has been a dream of mine since the start, and we are beyond excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to talk with us, and welcome, Franny Choi. Hi. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. I love that poem so much. It it really just, just speaks to the conversations that we've we've been having on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's weird. It's one that I I feel like I have been like I I think that sometimes poems end up being a thing that I return to, you know, mm. the ones that I've yeah. I've written and and I and I come back and like they're they're sort of like little breadcrumbs. 
reminders to a future self. And, and that mm. that's one that I keep kind of coming back to and remembering like, yeah, okay. It's, it's happened before. Like we're mm. living in the aftermath, like, and, and like, because we're here in the aftermath, that means that there'll be an aftermath after this one, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the book that that poem came from. Again, the title is The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On. And I wanted to ask you about the book as a project. Yeah, totally. Thank you for for this question. Um, Because the book is coming out in November, Mm. um, I'm still at the beginning of like my year of practicing talking about it. So so, like bear with me as I, I work through some of it. But that poem was sparked by the reminder that my partner gave me, it was actually right after the 2016 election. Mm, Um, And I think that that was a time when I saw a lot of apocalypse media cropping up and a lot of artists and writers that I knew were thinking about it and and talking about it in their work. Mm. I mean, I certainly, those ideas were wending their ways into into my work as well. And, And I think it was kind of like, this moment where for so many people, like an unthinkable alternate reality kind of became a reality. And yeah, like, yeah. This, this world that had already been terrible just became like, like parodically terrible, right. you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like so many of our people were suddenly under intense threat that was like unmatched, except maybe like sort of historically. Mm. Um, and then I thought about like, when did I last feel this way that like a branch of time had kind of been formed and suddenly I was in a reality that I had never considered before or not that I hadn't considered, but that, you know, was like, had lurked in the back of my mind as like a terrible possibility, right. but that wasn't the way I thought things might go. And it was honestly, it was when I was 20, my, 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 boyfriend my partner he died very suddenly um he mm. like fell off mm. of a really tall building um sorry it was just like a completely unexpected sudden profound loss which mm. shaped a lot of my um the first book my first book and it, it was i remember it just being like like just having in my mind this path that was straight and forward and then just like a branch off. And I just felt like suddenly Mm -hmm. I had, I was in this branch and there was this chasm that had opened up between the way I thought things might go, the world Mm -hmm. as I had imagined it and the world I was living in. Mm. And I think that this is why, you know, this is a book that is about big political movements and catastrophes, but it's also just about like the intense, world-shifting power of grief um, and and like the personal losses that make it f- feel like an entire world, new world has opened up. And like there's a death of a, of a former self that opens up into this new version of your life that you have to kind of like start from scratch and figure out how to live. And yeah, so there's, there were those, those were the two connections. Um, and then when I started writing these poems, thinking about, the present as apocalypse. I also started thinking about like, okay, like if if it's true that we all come from um, some sort of world ending catastrophic event, then like, what is the apocalypse that I personally come from? And I started mm-hmm. thinking that was when I started thinking about the Korean War um, of a, of a country being like c- totally split down the middle. Um, mm-hmm and, you know, millions of civilians being killed. Um, And I also thought about um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was the prelude to the end of World War II. And in the case of somebody who, like me, comes from a people who were colonized by the Japanese empire, um, a prelude to the end of a period of colonization, which is like a deeply, mm. deeply uncomfortable um, history that I had to sort of try to kind of contend with in this in this mm. book. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's like a horrifying, bad experience to to like dig through all of the awful things that have allowed a person to be alive, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's the whole, that's the very long winded backstory. Um, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah, I, I hear in, in that kind of, um, 
what you're saying about kind of recognizing the histories of crisis and apocalyptic ruptures that sort of lead to our our being here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm a I'm an American Jew who's uh, you know half of my of my family is also Holocaust survivors and yeah. you know met met in English class as immigrants in in New York. Yeah. Um, my grandfather and grandmother. So that's sort of like you know if if they hadn't been displaced they wouldn't have come together and, you know, that, that's sort of like, how do, how do I come to be, but also how do I come to be here? Mm-hmm. And I mean, thinking about like how our lives and our existences are this kind of processing of this history that has so, so, so much in it. The, the sort of like fact of being here to witness at this moment as this sort of cause and effect, <laughs> like mm-hmm. queer time amalgam of, of all these different happenings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that it it definitely makes it makes time strange, and it makes like waking up in the morning fucking weird. Um, but all of us who are settlers on native land, you know, um, yeah. whether we're here, however recent or historical our immigration story is, I'm not really the person to speak with any sort of expertise on the politics of land acknowledgments. But mm-hmm. I think that perhaps there's like some part of it that is trying to constantly reconcile with the fact or if not reconcile like acknowledge the fact that yeah our 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 being here in this moment is dependent upon the genocide of native peoples um and like maybe one problem is that that when it's kind of like given as a simple disclaimer um then there's only you know that only goes so far but i think that there's like a there is a, a society-wide grieving and reckoning that needs to continue to happen in order to make that acknowledgement kind of like make any sense, you know? Mm, um, yeah. And I think that that's like, it's, it, it, but I think also like, how weird would it be if every time one showed up to a room, you know, we all said like the historical calamity <laughs> that made us, you know, like my pronouns are she, they, like I come from the Korean War, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, would be how, yeah, but, but in yeah. some ways, like also like, I, I don't know, I, obviously it would be like completely untenable, but, but maybe that's like part of what we're trying to do as, as poets and as artists to say, like, here's what we came from. And here's like the little bit of grieving that we can do together in order to, to move through it and heal some of that generational trauma that has made us. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of some classrooms that I've been in, like, like, especially, you know, high school classrooms of like these where I come from poems that are something that it's a sort of an exercise that as a teacher, you can sort of you know, you can do it in any class. And I've often found with with young people, like it is so, so powerful again and again and again to like be placed in that way and to place themselves in that way. Totally. Um, the good and the bad of it, like <laughs> all of the strands of it. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a way in which I feel like I've been in a lot of classrooms where it's like, yes, these are my pronouns mm-hmm. and this is my historical trauma. And, mm-hmm. and these are the nice things about the way my mom looks at my dad. And like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like it totally it's the good and the bad, you know, like as like a a very maybe unprofound example, like <laughs> Korean fried chicken, which is like the mm. best, I think like the one of the best foods that has ever been invented. Um but Korean fried chicken is like a product of US military mm. um, occupation in or presence in in Korea, in South Korea, mm-hmm. you know, it's like because of the GIs who are there um, and, and specifically black American mm-hmm. um, GIs that, and like, you know, that sort of like I- encounter between cuisines that created this, this food that is like so deeply beloved by me and also <laughs> by many. Um, and that, you know, like, it's not, it's not like yeah. a referendum on what that yeah. history was but it's like you know we live with like one million side effects of the history that we come Mm. from and um and like some of them are life-shatteringly bad and some of them are delicious Mm -hmm. yes yes Yeah. (laughs) yeah i i wanted to linger on something else you said just a moment ago that was super resonant for me which was this idea of being on the wrong branch hmm or if not wrong, just one that one would wish 
oneself not to be on. Thinking about the 2016 election and this idea of like, it could have gone two ways and it was diverted in a direction that was to me personally, exceedingly horrifying. Mm. When you said branch, it was incredibly evocative to me of how many people in the classrooms that I teach in, I teach interactive fiction. Mm. And I I find that there are so many people coming to this work of nonlinear narrative mm. and branching narrative in this mode of apocalypse and grief over present and historical traumas all manifesting at once in this moment. And like, I don't know, like finding their way to these other forms of acknowledging queer time and alternate timelines Mm. as like being present with the way we understand this particular branch that is this reality that we're living in. And it was just, it was so amazing for me that you mentioned this idea of a branch because again and again, I've been engaging with students who are thinking that same way about telling their stories in light of apocalypse. Mm. And it connected for me just with the fraught relationship I have with the machine side to this, the computers that we use to make this work. I want to get into that a little bit more, but um, I'm curious if you would talk a little bit about this idea of branching, you know, how that's manifesting in this book project. And hmm. yeah, oh, man. Recently, I, I was listening to a different podcast. And they were talking about this question of why is everybody interested in the multiverse right yeah. now, you know, yeah. Um, which I don't know the answer to. So I have a few suspicions or things that I might say mm. in response to such a question. But I mean, I think that one of the things about that idea of an alternate universe um, is the knowledge that like things could be different, you know, mm-hmm. and like kind of going back to this, this example of when something bad happens and like in the split second, a decision is made and something else, you know, it could have gone a different way. Like, I don't know. I just remember like the first time, for example, I like got into a car accident, mm-hmm. you know, like I just like backed out and I mean, it wasn't a car accident. I like backed out into my neighbor's car, but um, <laughs> as a teenager and in that moment, I was like, oh, like, let me just go back two seconds in time and I will, <laughs> yeah, I will yeah. do it differently, you know? <laughs> and it's like a very visceral feeling. It's not like a cognitive thing. It's It's just like in my body, I just feel like if I could just if I could just have one more, one do over, like I would, it would be different and it would be better. Yeah. And like that feeling, which is like a bodily in my chest feeling, like what else can propel huge popular movements for change? You know, this idea that like, it can be different if we, if we do it differently, like it can be different and like, you know, this bodily feeling of like, I'm, I must make it different. So I, I don't know. I think in some ways I kind of want to bottle that feeling and distribute it because like, I think it's, I think it's very powerful. So I don't know like exactly if I have been able to bottle it in the form of poems, but I think I've tried in some ways to not just grieve for the past, but also try to imagine branches of the future where things might be different. Mm. That like, if I show you this branch, then maybe like, maybe could you do something in your life to like push us all a little bit further toward that branch? Um, mm. I know that I've had that experience as a reader. I remember reading Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Yeah. As an organizer, you know, at the time I was organizing around like, police abolition um, in Providence. And um, even though I said over and over in public, like we're, we envision a world without police. Like Mm. I actually had no idea. I was like, I don't actually know what that means. I'm just like saying this because I I believe it, but I I can't, I can't see it, you know? Mm. Um, And then it wasn't, it was like, it wasn't until I read this novel and I could see what the world without police and the world without prisons looked like that I was like, Mm. Oh, okay. Now I do envision a world without police. And I, it feels a little bit more possible to me. Like this branch has kind of become a little clearer in the distance and I can kind of shift my compass a little bit toward Mm. it. Yeah. Oh man. 
I'm d- remembering my own experience of sideswiping a car. I yeah. Was, you know, <laughs> p- parallel parking and I like did it too fast. And of course it was someone's BMW. No. So, you know. <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> but I, that feeling, that, that physical sensation mm. of the, the like spawning of this alternate reality where <laughs> that didn't happen yeah. is so real. Yeah. And like I I just I love the idea of literature and poetry that's interested in this being part of the tools of manifesting that reality mm-hmm. not just through seeing but like through a physical kind of feeling. Yeah. And that's like the thing that I feel like that's totally where poetry comes in, you know, Mm. because, or at least, you know, for me, because it's not just a, it's not just a literature of ideas. Exactly. It's an art of the materiality of language. You know, Mm. I feel like alliteration like does something to my pores. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Certain sounds make my hairs stand up and like, give me a shift. It's very physical Mm. or it can be, I think when a poet is like really going for it. And so I think like the work of poets who are trying to imagine alternate universes is, is not just sort of like proposing them, but like making you feel for a second what it might be like to live there. And I think that that can be really powerful. Mm. (laughs) Is it okay if I flip the question on its head a little bit? Yeah. Because I also want to ask you like, you know, of course, I honed in on the like the biological physicality of the work. Mm. And I want to ask about machines. Yeah. And I mean, you've written and spoken a lot about poetic form, about co-authoring a text with a machine of poetry. Mm. And I know you've written in your nonfiction about robots, cyborgs, this sort of machine-human relationship or collaboration that we also contend with right now that is present in all of these apocalyptic imaginings. And we were saying a text is visceral. And I'm curious also for you how poetry is machine-like and how uh, relationships with machines manifest for you in this work and then just in your work in general. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for this question. I love, I love thinking about this and I love thinking about it with other people. I mean, I think that something kind of clicked for me at some point when I realized that I wrote this poetry book about, among other things, the idea of the cyborg, um, robots, machines, and fembots. And there is a series of poems that are that feature like a character called the cyborg. But then at some point I realized that it was it was actually that the cyborg of my book was not this character that was being described, but actually the poem itself, you know, because the especially it, when thinking about poems that are written in form, you know, it's a system, it's a grid, it's an algorithm, it's a series of like steps that you're supposed to to follow. And yet we're also supposed to fill that form with the thing that the form can't do, which is like the spooky soul mm. part of things, you right. know? And so I realized that like, oh, when we're, when we're writing in form, we're collaborating with the machine. And, and it, it, something clicked for me when I realized that all of the terminology around poetic form was very machine. Like, you know, it's mm. like a, a, a tool, like does the poem, does the form work? Like the technique of it, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that side of it. But I also think, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm going to try to like have a new thought right now, um, which is like, I think that that collaboration, there's something about it that maybe like we as humans were never right? Like we're never just like humans existing without technology of any kind, you know, (laughs) like we're always in collaboration with machines or like trapped Mm. in in our relationship to them. Um, And that is in fact, like what makes us human in the way that we define it. You know, we look at like a crow using a hook and think like, wow, like how intelligent that crow (laughs) is, how much like us it is for like using a a tool. And I think that like the way that machines and robots have been so closely and uncomfortably linked to Asian people and especially Mm. Asian women in Mm. media has made me feel a little bit more suspicious of the ways that we talk about 
the kind of like rise of technology mm. as this like mm. annihilative, you know, encroaching danger to all of us, mm-hmm. to our our humanity, you know, like I think that if you look at the way that people talk about the rise of tech and of like AI and the way that people talk about like immigrants and immigration mm-hmm. um, and like the rise of China, mm-hmm. it's, the language is spookily similar or at least related. Mm-hmm. And so I think that puts me in like a weird position yeah. where I have to say, I like believe in worker power and that the human workers like should, I believe that like that we humans should not be replaced by machines. And also the, I, that like fight um, has put me sometimes on the other end of that, like by Mm -hmm. virtue of just being like an an immigrant and being Asian. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I find this sort of like push pull at least to be like very interesting and it's either confounding or sort of like pleasurable (laughs) to be at that, crux between these fights. I just love the idea of being at the crux of the debate between those two sides, because it seems like it's often kind of put to be this binary, like when people say like, oh, you know, we can't be replaced by machines. And mm-hmm. as someone that engages with technology, I, I rarely think it's a case of machines showing up and knocking on the door one day. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, the, the way it's talked about like to me does smack of that same language about immigrants coming and taking jobs. Like it has this tone of racism to me. Totally. And it's more about reproducing that than it is about engaging with Mm. what machines do do and can do and what they can't do and won't do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is, like all things, a way of mapping our, I'm using our very broadly, (laughs) own like anxieties about race (laughs) and about gender. I mean, machines are sort of like the ultimate um, palette for mapping otherness onto. Absolutely. Even, you know, this idea of like the machines coming and knocking at the door, like which machines are the machine apocalypse and which machines are like the helping machines. And all of those tropes are, are the same tropes that have come up time and time again, every, every, in every like framework of othering for humans and every like racist framework. Yeah. Yeah. The scary uprisers and the helpers and these machines are good and these machines are bad and, and the sort of wish and fantasy for some category of person that can be totally othered. And that can just like not have an interior that needs to be considered. Mm. Right. I mean, there's like, there's like a, like a dominant cultural like craving for that, yeah. right? Like a sort of sadistic craving for it. I mean, I think that it's also like to me super interesting to think about the ways that these anxieties and, you know, ideas about what machines are and um, what rights they do or don't serve and whether or not they are um, out to get us, like that those have shaped the development of actual. AI mm-hmm. and, and robotics, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That work isn't happening in a vacuum. All of those folks in those labs, like they too have watched Star Trek, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and like are <laughs> developing robots based on that. I mean, I, some of the early AI work, I think it was like in MIT labs or something, there was a very conscious framework in developing AI to like treat the program using a framework of a person with autism Mm -hmm. um and so like asd and a knowledge of of that and how that might shape um interpersonal interaction is like Mm -hmm. is baked into the way that ai even works right now you know um so like it's not even that these technologies are metaphors for things like race and gender and disability they're also kind of like the result of of those yeah created out of them Yeah. Mm. I think about the way that you treat, I mean, so often your work sort of engages with the interiority of these othered creatures, these creatures that are not considered in the normative sense to be alive. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the squid, the lobotomized squid in your poem, The Man Who Shouted, I Like Pork Fried Rice and Me on the Street. And Mm. that, that poem is referencing, I think, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but it's referencing a, a video of a, of a squid dish. Um, yeah. And when I look at that video, what I see is a squid with part of its head cut off. 
And then when someone pours soy sauce on the body of the squid, like the tentacles move and it sort of makes the the squid start crawling around on the plate. And you take this image and you were talking to Kaveh Akbar about it in an interview for Dive Dapper. um, And this is a long time ago, like 2015 Mm -hmm. or something like that. So. But but you turn this this like tentacly zombie squid kind of, you know, reminiscent of like of a robot in the way that it's that it's moving and kind of, you know, mimicking life mm. and speak from it as like a taker of vengeance and not just vengeance, but like the, the ways that it makes the eater and the watcher feel so uncomfortable about mm-hmm. the violence that's been committed on this body about like the like idea of what is dead and what is alive, what can feel, what can't feel. And and there's like all these ways in which it kind of gets the last laugh, but then also it had this has been done to it. It is dead, mm-hmm. and it, it just it makes me think so much. I mean, kind of going back to some of these ideas of branching pathways and the ways that like all of these events, some of them so humongously apocalyptic and catastrophic, create you know the bodies that we hold. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just thinking about this like lobotomized zombie. <laughs> dish as like a model for queer survival and like a model for what it is like to have a queer body and like carry all this stuff right it's do it's deeply gay that's <laughs> that a gay, gay zombie squid <laughs> yeah oh man but like yeah i mean i think that the question is like what is so queer about that yeah yeah <laughs> you're you totally totally right I feel I feel like oh I don't know I mean honestly it's weird to say but I feel like closely identifying with that dead squid and then also with Mm -hmm. like living squids and Mm -hmm. cephalopods of all kinds like there was (laughs) there is a way this is not a smart answer it's just like a personal answer that Mm -hmm. like it is uh, it was a step towards towards like in my queerness you know like like deeply relating to this completely other way of being that was so powerful and beautiful and like uh, inhuman was like Mm -hmm. a way of being like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. Like I, I can, I can be that. I can be like totally alternative to what you think a person should be. And Mm. like, even after having, you know, Mm. my head chopped off. Um, But I think also like, yeah, this is, this is maybe the thing about, about cephalopods, about octopuses, um, Mm. that their evolution branched off so early from ours, you know, And so they're such intelligent creatures that are essentially aliens because of how distant we are and they're also like so evolved. And I think that finding kind of an affinity with this beautiful other creature that you can't exactly communicate with, I don't know, Mm -hmm. there's something affirming about that. Or like maybe if there's something affirming about that, then like maybe you're gay, you know? Maybe that, like, maybe that's the that's like the takeaway. Um, I think that I don't know if I have anything smart. No, to say. absolutely, absolutely. I mean, also, it's you know not 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 smart answers to, to to this question. Also, but I feel like there's something really like completely beautiful about the ways that octopuses and squids like put us in our bodies. Yeah, like fuck being smart about squids. But yeah. like, <laughs> I remember the first time that I got to see an octopus up close in the Seattle Aquarium. Mm-hmm. And like it just it looks like a writhing pile of genitals. Like totally. that is what octopi look like. And the way that like their skin is loose on these long tentacles and they can fit into these tiny spaces and then they expand into these like huge, gorgeous, powerful creatures that are also sort of like flirting with interdimensionality. <laughs> like yeah. they can change colors, like there is something about them that is like all the parts of our bodies that we hide. <laughs> yeah. And they're just like, that's what I am. I am a yeah. riding pile of genitals. <laughs> riding pile of genitals, like constantly in drag, yes. you know, constantly being like, ooh, I'm going to be purple and red and flash. Uh, and then now I'm, now I'm like a bush, you know, <laughs> like I'm a pile of kelp, like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that like, this is, this for me is like what, like, that's, that's what the beauty of what queerness is, is that it like opens up possibilities of like 
other ways of being, you know, mm. like I, I feel that as a child and as, as an adolescent, like each time I, I encountered a queer person mm. or a trans person, those experiences were so profound for me because it was just like a door had opened each time, mm. you know, like, oh, I could live like that. Like I could mm-hmm. be, that is a way that I as a person can be I can live um like I I don't know I just think about like the first time I saw drag queens and I was like oh like Mm -hmm. I like that is the shape that my femininity can take like these were liberating moments because they just showed a way out of the thing and like maybe that is the thing about other non-human beings is that they just show us like other ways of being and other other beings that we might treat as if not like as human as us like because that like can't be the metric but like right. as as interesting and as like complex and wild and and mysterious and beautiful and deserving of love like i don't know i, I mm-hmm. they, these feel to me like related mm-hmm. things so this is like my favorite conversation ever. <laughs> like it's it's so wonderful because it's making me think of some absolutely wonderful times I've had role playing. Mm-hmm. During COVID, I wrote a short role playing game about animals who dress up as other animals. Oh, I love that. I love that trope and I love <laughs> that <laughs> i and when you said octo you know octopuses look like they're in drag i was like yes thank you <laughs> like that's exactly and i was thinking in particular there was one player who played this game with me who narrated a snail that dresses up as an oyster <laughs> so the idea was there's an oyster shell and there's a snail kind of curled up in it Using having its slug like soft snail body kind of masquerade as the soft, kind of unctuous oyster body. And then the snail disguised its shell as the oyster's pearl. Oh, that's so good. And it was it, this just the way the, both of you are talking about this, just it tuned so much in with me for that like feeling of squishy animals and like sea creatures. And the thing I love so much about that example was it was like one queer animal pretending to be another queer animal. And like, it was just like so much joy in the shapes and textures, the physical feelings I feel when I look at those animals, so intensely joyful and strange. I just wanted to also add a non-smart like yes to all of this. Yeah. Have you ever seen snails having sex? No. Okay. (laughs) Totally reasonable response. Um, (laughs) But they just sort of, there's some like really great footage of, I mean, I just, I recommend, I recommend you look up um, snails having sex because they, they Mm -hmm. like, at least, at least this one kind, like, hang suspended sort of like upside down from a high place and then their fleshy bits sort of um oh maybe these are slugs now i can't remember but they (laughs) they sort of like intertwine they like twirl up into like a little ice cream cone swirl um (laughs) while hanging from like you know like a branch or something it's like deeply beautiful Mm. yeah I love that. And also seems that. very gay to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> we will be 100%. the slug fruit of this of this tree of slugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like I see some connections back to like, I don't know, between between that concept of I don't know, it's reminding me of like what you were saying about the dispossessed and what a poem can mm. do. Sort of looking at these other ways of being as like and seeing queers on the street when you're a kid, absolutely completely familiar, uh, oh. you know, bursting open of the possible future just because you see that someone else does exist. Yeah. And and that like you know, maybe, maybe that's one of the many ways that these different moments of your work living in each other is like, here is an unfolding possibility for how else you can do it. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, I feel like that is like, in some ways, sometimes I feel that that's what I've been put on earth to do, Mm. you know, to like, just use, use language in, in ways that makes another people feel like, like do like a tiny, tiny bit of that feeling of, of having a door open, like a little, like a little crack, a little window. Mm. Yeah. Even if it's, if it's like on the scale of a poem that makes 
it seem possible to exist in a world without police or Mm -hmm. just like a poem that makes it feel you think like, wow, like the word moment, that's a weird word, you know? Mm. Um, Or like, what if you, what if you like took out the verbs, like what that would do? I I don't know. I think, I think that I feel like my, my life has been made possible by other people Mm. opening those little cracks for me. And so I want to try to try to open a few on my end. Just talking about opening the door for people, having the these cracks in reality being open for you. You are part of a collective of artists called the Dark Noise Collective, mm-hmm. a group of fo- poets founded in 2012 that includes Fatima Asghar, Danez Smith, Jamila Woods, Nate Marshall, and Aaron Samuels. These poets are folks you collaborate with, but they also show up in your work. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this community and what they mean to you. And then if you want to go there, I would I would love to hear too about maybe how some of these relationships are interacting with some of the apocalypse ideas that you've been working with in, in the last few years. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think I, I get pretty emotional talking about, about dark noise. Um, they're, they're just, um, they're my family, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point we've been gathering every year, twice a year with the exception of the last few mm-hmm. for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been and continues to be a group of artists who make it seem possible to inhabit this world, like generally speaking, but also, mm. you know, we came together because we were trying to figure out how to inhabit the literary world as the people that we were, as six poets of color who were all like the same age and and just kind of like trying to to step into that into that life at the same time, and who all had like a little bit of experience here and a little bit of of knowledge here. Um, we came together just to try to pool our resources. You know, Nate had just finished like his first year at an MFA program. Aaron Mm. had just gotten a book under contract. Fatih was like working in a theater and I was organizing. And, Mm. and so we were, we all sort of tried to like put all of this together and say like, okay, if like we can't have all of it, like maybe we can share um, and, and try to have sort of all, alternative to create an alternative to this idea that there is a scarcity of shine and love out there for Mm, us mm. um and like just try to try to choose to believe that your win is my win and like the love that you get is the love that i get you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. um and that was that was the sort of experiment I mean, we also were trying to, at the beginning, we were very young and ambitious. And so we also wanted to like go on tour, create like a curriculum, like a teaching curriculum. Like um, we had a lot of like plans and ideas for stuff that we wanted to do. And then when one of the people in the group had like a health crisis, we shifted gears entirely and said, actually, this is not a space for us to like do a bunch of stuff. This is a space for us to radically and kind of systematically like love each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. We, for a while we had like a rotating role, um, an official role, which was called the big mama. And every six months we would switch off. And that person's job was to check in on everybody else mm. and gather us together and like organize care packages and like just kind of try just like be in charge of of the the systems of supporting each other and like i think that this is a tiny tiny example right like a collective of six people but i see it as being related to mutual aid efforts mm-hmm. and the ways that people in a crisis in emergency situations have more of a tendency to come together and share what they have and support their neighbors mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the myth that like when disaster strikes it's right. like every man for himself or whatever Cannibalism um, immediately. yeah <laughs> like Rebecca Solnit has her, her book a paradise built in hell was really informative for me on this and like her mm-hmm. insistence that after um, the San Francisco fires and then also after um, Hurricane Katrina that overwhelmingly um, people on the ground chose to help each other um, mm-hmm. rather than f- 
fight against fight, you know, fight for, for scraps and fight for resources. Mm. Um, and that like holding on to that and like refusing to believe the rumors otherwise, Mm. that's like what has always gotten our people through times of disaster and crisis. And that's what will get us through the many that are sure to come after the 2016 election. Like, I think one of the first things I did was put as my, like as my phone lock screen, just a Hmm. a collage of everyone that I like all the like queer people of color that were my chosen family. Hmm. And it was just like a reminder that in this time, like these are the people who I'm investing all of my energy into and my care and my love. And like, this is the core of like a big extended chosen family that I like choose to be in relation with. Um, Yeah. Mm, That makes so, so, so much sense. Like you're talking a little bit about, you know, kind of practicing for the apocalypse in the apocalypse. (laughs) Um, Like, how do we set up these relationships and thinking about like that? It's so um, evocative, this idea of like switching around the the role of big mama in this, in this group. Like, I don't know, that strikes me in particular, I, I think because in so many group dynamics that I've been a part of or seen people kind of fall into different roles and relations for caretaking that come out of their strengths and their gifts. And also sometimes the ways they've learned to cope that maybe aren't great for them. And then they always end yeah. up in this role And I just love kind of hearing about that intentional sort of sharing of that labor of emotional support. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that you said it, that you called it a practice because I think it totally, it totally is. And like practice being like both just like a thing that you do actually in in the world and also a thing that you like practice doing now for later, you know, like soon after the COVID related stay at home orders, all came down. Like, I remember, I think that it was Leah Lakshmi um, Piepsa Samarasinha, who I, I heard talking about how disabled folks and especially folks who are queer and people of color um, and disabled are the ones who have the networks yeah. to survive like the climate apocalypses to mm. come, you know, mm. and have the practices and the system set up in order to survive whatever comes our way. And I just, I, I hold on to that really really tightly because even though our people who are marginalized are in some ways like at the most risk, like very really at the most risk, Mm -hmm. we also like have the practices to be Mm -hmm. able to navigate and survive together um, and to make do and even thrive with very, very little. Well, we like to end with a little bit of, of speculative fiction together. So the last question we had for you, if you can put yourself there to imagine you're forming a community um, that's rebuilding after apocalyptic collapse, one of many. And as one of your companions, you can choose any fembot from any sci-fi medium, including reality. Who do you want by your side? Oh, no. I, I saw this question and I didn't come up with an answer <laughs> oh god wait let me take a second to think about it if hope that's okay yeah yeah of course Absolutely. oh god wait okay wait what let me just like think of like a the cast of fembots like uh okay like not kyoko not eva either okay wait can we can we like try to gather some fembots <laughs> to consider <laughs> Well, well, Boomer is at the top of my mind. Boomer, yeah. Your essays. And Nat, you were talking about Ghost in the Shell the other day. I, I That did come to mind. I mean, I think that the, the major. major is like really, that's a really, really good answer. <laughs> I think the major is a really great answer. I was wondering if you would bring up Kyoko. I haven't seen Ex Machina. Mm. But I actually, I had a student in an interactive fiction class made a game, I think inspired by your poem. Mm-hmm. She shared it with us, but you said not Kyoko. No, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I love Kyoko, but I don't. Kyoko's like kind of a rogue agent, you know what I mean? And like is deeply mysterious, which is why you know, it's like kind of <laughs> impossible to communicate with her. And that's why I love her. But I don't know if she's like the best. She's not. I don't know if she's like my top pick in a pinch right for your Um, zombie apocalypse team (laughs) yeah for my zombie apocalypse team i don't know i feel like you know okay here's (laughs) a really a weird example and i don't know if this might be completely wrong because i don't think that she's like exactly very like smart or 
Hmm. Well, she's smart, but she's not exactly like strong or fast or whatever. But I've been obsessed with in Star Trek in Next Generation data at some point. Do you? I don't know if if y'all know, but like the there's an episode where he like creates a daughter. He like makes a daughter for himself called Lol, I think, Mm. Um, and she ends up not lasting very long because she feels too much Ooh. um she's like very she, but i guess sort of it's like data's daughter who maybe has like f- figured out some sort of like you know self-regulation self-soothing <laughs> like things in order to, to deal with her intense emotions because i think the data would be a great a great um bot to have around mm-hmm. a great android to have around so maybe <laughs> i'll go with like yeah maybe i'll go with like lol after therapy <laughs> I love that you're I love that you're not like the super you're not like, well, how can this machine support me? You're like, who would be my good friend? <laughs> yes. Yeah, good friend, but also like very smart, like yeah. super brilliant, you know. And data is very strong. So I'm assuming yeah. that that law has some has okay. some capabilities as well. She just never exactly got to express them. She's got you know? some upper sleeve. <laughs> yeah, I think so. We want the branch where she continued to exist and right. went on to found this community. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think that she would be emotionally intelligent. Data? That's great. Perfection. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, do we do we still have time for one more poem? Oh yeah. Let me see. It's 1.30. Oh no, yeah, I can read it. I can read another poem. Amazing. Brandy Joy, thank you so, so, so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a such a pleasure to get to talk to you all about all of my favorite subjects, squids, snail sex, robots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's this one toward the end of the book, and it's called Look. My mother, very Catholic, loves that song, Imagine There's No Heaven. Can you picture it? My mother joining the chorus of her three churchless children to croon, no heaven, no hell, nothing before or after. Above us, only the universe and its borderless yawn. Only the trees who died for my handwriting, history's pollen, fields and field hands I can't stop robbing with money. Today, I woke up on still-stolen land, then scrolled through the latest debris of people attempting godliness in a hundred wrong ways. The room was filled today with light. Filled, you could say, with nothing. No hope, no glory. No such peach as an ethical peach. The minute I started wanting paradise, it leapt from my belief. I'm not good enough to survive not being good. I'm like you, still drooling after a perfect world, even as the stars warble off-key and the oceans rattle with plastics. Imagine, I can't stop saying. Imagine, I beg, when I should have said, look, look. Paradise is both a particle and a wave. You don't have to believe in something for it to startle you awake. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>